Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. So I'm joined today by Rose. Hi, Rose. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good. How about you? I'm great. Thank you so much for asking. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. I'm glad to be able to talk to you guys about a little bit of what I do. So let's start out and learn about who you are. So what's a little brief thing about what you do? Okay, well, I recently graduated with my second bachelor's degree from Florida International University. I got a bachelor of science in marine biology. And I'm currently a research analyst at the Aquatic Ecology and Ecotoxicology Lab, as well as the lab manager there. And I sort of, my research sort of focuses on the effects of metal contaminants in aquatic ecosystems. And I tend to focus a little bit more on the effects of heavy metals like copper on fish behavior. Cool. Some some big words in there that we're going to dive a little more into later on. <laughs> They're all super easy, I promise. <laughs> we just have very fancy ways of saying something that's very simple. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, that's just science in general. <laughs> I think so. It's like when you break it down, it's so easy. (laughs) This is a huge word. You're like, oh, that's what it means? Okay, cool. You can just say that? Cool. (laughs) So did you always know that you wanted to go into the marine science field or did you find this later on? What was your kind of story to get into it? It's sort of a little bit of a yes and no. I kind of always knew I wanted to do something that was in marine science. I mean, when I was eight years old, I told my mom, hey, I'm going to be a marine scientist. And she's like, you know, that's nice, dear. Go ahead. (laughs) And I would go out with my grandfather, who was a fisherman, on Sundays, and he would take me out with him to sort of see what he does. And I was always fascinated by, you know, everything that was happening in the ocean. And I sort of learned very early on that that's what I wanted to do. But it was never like... A clear-cut path like I never knew exactly what it was that I wanted to do and I found out later on it's such a broad field (laughs) you know saying you're a marine biologist it's like okay cool what does that mean exactly because it's just such a crazy broad field it really is what did you do to pursue this like when was it kind of you made your choice of narrowing your path a little bit well it sort of started so I grew up in Germany and um I was not close to an ocean whatsoever, so it was a little bit hard. And I actually ended up getting my first bachelor's degree in biotechnology. And then a little bit after that, my mother moved back to uh, the U.S. She moved to Florida, and I sort of followed. And that's when I decided to get a second degree in marine biology. But it was never sort of a very clear-cut path. It was always just sort of trying to find things that I liked and things that I was good at. And sort of taking it into that direction. But it's really funny because my sort of current sort of mini field or, you know, extended field of ecotoxicology was not something that I had ever planned. It was just really a comeuppance where I slid into this field and I found out that I really love it. And I've been here ever since. So I was taking a class on professional development in environmental sciences. And one of the teaching assistants was actually helping organize that class you know she was the one who sort of started me off in this she did a lot of ecotoxicology work and I one day jokingly told her she should hire me and turns out she was actually looking for an assistant at the time so she's like can you stay after class 
to do an interview and I was like oh sure <laughs> and we sort of had like a 10 minute interview 15 minute interview and I sort of became her assistant and I've been in this field ever since so <laughs> so it really did just kind of find you just very happenstance kind of thing yes it was completely on accident I mean it was a happy accident because I love the field yeah but it was definitely not something that I had planned prior to <laughs> I love that I also think it's um ironic that you grew up not around the water because I feel like people in the marine science it's either like you grew up with the water it was always right there it played a huge role in your life <laughs> or you were nowheres near it and there's no middle ground it's it's one of the two it it really is always like that and it's always funny because people always ask me like well can you be a marine biologist when there's not an ocean near you I was like absolutely you can because the ocean starts in your backyard right it's you know yeah. everything that we do you know even at home eventually ends up finding its way into the ocean so yeah you can still study it even if there's not a giant body of water near you absolutely I always I'm from Canada and I always think it's so funny because we have I think a total of like five marine biology schools and one of them is in Saskatchewan which is the dead center of the country with no <laughs> bodies of water like nothing that's awesome <laughs> And yet you can study marine biology there. But it's just so funny to me. Which is funny because I, I go to Canada a lot. And um, I usually go to Nova Scotia. So, yeah, one nice. of the, so one of the schools there, Dalhousie, was sort of always like one of my like top marine bio choices. But when I started looking at other schools in Canada, I was like, this school is nowhere near a body of water. How do they do this? <laughs> like, yep. <no. laughs> Um, Dalhousie was actually my number. I'm from New Brunswick, so like right adjacent Ooh, to the Maritimes. <laughs> yes. And Dalhousie was actually my like number one pick for my school. It's where I wanted to go because I wanted to do marine bio. And I was like, this is where I'm going. And then my high school guidance counselor sent in my transcript two days after the due date. So I didn't oh, get to go there no. my first year. And it was honestly probably the best happy accident that could have happened because I ended up going to UNB in St. John and at first you're like, oh, it's just, it's in the Bay of Fundy, but then you actually get to learn more about the Bay of Fundy and it was the coolest school to ever go to. And I'm so happy it happened. So Are you it's funny how it works out. I'm obsessed with the Bay of Fundy. It's a very unhealthy obsession <laughs> I have <laughs> because it's just like such that. an enigma to me. And I'm like, this is like the coolest place ever. And my boyfriend, bless his heart, you know, he lives in, he lives in Halifax. So Every time I go visit him, I was like, we have to go there. And he's like, it's a bay. I was like, I know, but it's so cool. The craziest tides happen there. <laughs> I love that. I always, whenever I travel somewhere and I'm like talking to like ocean people, I'm always like, yeah, like I live by the Bay of Fundy, like the highest tides in the world, as if I'm the reason we have the highest tides. Like it's my pride and joy. Absolutely. But they're so it. cool. <laughs> it's like one of those places that's like so crazy and it's just really cool to look at, like to see what happens there. <laughs> Right. And like, it's one of those places, like if I didn't grow up here and someone said like 30 foot tides, I'd be like, oh my God. But I grew up here and I'm like, wait, tides are different other places? Like, what, what do you mean? It doesn't change that much. Like what? It was so that. weird to me learning that. That's, no, that's great. I love it. <laughs> you said um, one of your professors kind of got you into the ecotoxicology field, but yeah. did you have anyone growing up that you really like looked up to or was like they do this I want to do that not really 
I mean, I know everybody always says somebody like Sylvia Earle and Jacques Cousteau. I mean, I thought they were cool growing up, but it was never like, oh, I really want to be like them. It was kind of like, I appreciate what they do, but I kind of want to do my own thing. It was always sort of a weird, a weird sort of path where I didn't have one specific person I looked up to. I just knew, wow, I really love, like, if I had to look up to someone, it's the ocean itself. It's like, I love the ocean. You know, it's like, it's such a crazy place, you know, that's really magical in a very cheesy way you know so for me it was always kind of like oh I want to protect the ocean so now I have to study this to be able to protect the ocean and you know get other people to love the ocean as much as I do I love that I really I it does sound cheesy but sometimes when I talk (laughs) about the ocean I'm like I can't I can't put into words how much love I have for this body of water (laughs) no it's it's crazy and, and I think that's one of the cool things that sort of connects a lot of like marine biologists and environmental students or you know environmental researchers it's we all sort of have a love for the exact same thing which is why it's very easy yeah. even if you don't always see eye to eye to still try to come together yeah absolutely and it does make it easier because you, like it's almost a common goal you're like well obviously I don't want to do anything that's bad and you don't yeah. want to do anything that's bad so whatever we're working towards we ultimately want the same thing here. Yeah, even if we take different paths to get there. Yeah, and you were mentioning, like we mentioned earlier, that it's such a broad field, and it really is, but at the core of it, it's all just this love of this huge amount of water. Yeah, it's all just interconnected, and I'm I'm one of those weirdos. I appreciate fresh bodies of water just as much as I appreciate the ocean, because I'm like, okay, it's not salty, which is nice because anybody who's ever been diving, you know, it's great. But when you get like a giant mouthful of salt water, it's awful. <laughs> like feel yourself like instantly dehydrate when that happens. Yeah. Like, and you're then like, you're starving. Yeah. And then you're starving. It's it's a weird phenomenon. As soon as I hit the water, I'm like, okay, I'm hungry. <laughs> but, but it's like, I tend to include like fresh bodies of water within like the whole just stratosphere of it. Because I'm like, I'm going to protect you too because, you know, you're many oceans. You're many saltless oceans. And I love that. So. <laughs> I love that. Like oceans, but just not quite. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it is. It's very interesting for me when I always I always ask people this question about like, did you have anyone that inspired you? And everyone kind of has this rough answer of yes, but no. And like, obviously, <laughs> we knew about these people, but there was never any huge like well-known ocean figures I mean like Jack uh, Jack Cousteau and Sylvia Earle obviously but even then you kind of grew up just like hearing about them and not getting to interact with them yeah a lot so now I think it's amazing that there's so many platforms which you can interact with people on them and there's kind of more like ocean voices which I really think is amazing now I think there's a better bridge now sort of between the whole like us versus them turn into like it sort of turned into just a we I feel like by being able to connect with marine scientists like everywhere even just you know in schools on an individual level is sort of making the field a little bit more accessible to the everyday person and you know you have all of these you know citizen science programs and like community science programs which is just making it so much easier for you know the everyday quote-unquote non-scientists to sort of be able to interact with scientists and feel like they're contributing a significant amount to the field, which I think is awesome. Yeah, and it, it makes it seem a little less Scary. overwhelming. Because, <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
even myself now, I have a hard time being like, oh, I'm a marine biologist, even though I have my degree and like I technically am, but I'm like, I don't do anything super important right now. So I'm really not, (laughs) not there, but it makes it so it's like, I like, it's just, it does bridge that gap. You phrase that quite well, where it, it makes it seem less scary to interact with people who have the same, like the same credentials, but just seem so much more ahead of me. I mean, even as a student, you sort of look up to, you know, professors and PIs and labs and, you know, directors of entire institutes, and you sort of feel this disconnect in the sense of, well, you know, they're the higher ups and I'm sort of the grunt doing all the work. But like my school, for example, is amazing because I mean, my boss is the, you know, director of the Institute of Environment at our university. He's never, or like our university has never made it sort of a priority to distinguish, you know, high level people with low level people. Like, you know, in terms of the stage of your career, it's always been like, hey, we're all scientists, you know. I don't care if you're a first year student and you've been doing this for 50 years. We're all scientists and we're sort of going to figure this out together, which is really awesome. (laughs) I love that. That's amazing. I heard someone like a quote or something once that say like to be a scientist, all you have to do is be curious. And I love love that. That That is awesome. Because it really is like the second you ask the question of, oh, I wonder why this does this. You're a scientist. You're already creating a hypothesis or your question. Like you're there. Yeah. You're done. Yeah. I I agree. And it's funny because one of the things that I sort of got to miss out on this summer, which I'm really bummed about is not being able to do workshops with kids because the last two summers Mm. I've always held workshops with some of the students that were there for summer camp. And I haven't been able to do that this year. And some of these kids are insanely brilliant. It is scary. (laughs) You know, I would have kids come in and ask me questions. I'm like, that's a really good question. Like, I don't have the answer yeah. to that. <laughs> I always get, I work on a boat whale watching right now. And I always tell the kids like, oh, try and stump me. See if I can answer your questions. And for the most part, I can handle their questions. Like a lot of it is like, oh, how do whales eat? And I'm like, oh, I know that one. <laughs> but every so often I'll get a kid in and they're, they just ask these like, questions that are like I'm like I could do a PhD on that question so let's just tone it back a little bit like like, calm down you save that (laughs) you keep that in mind and then you go on and you answer that question (laughs) I'm gonna ask you that question in 15 years (laughs) (laughs) I also had one kid I was like ask me anything like see if you can stop me and he goes how do rockets work and I went well you know (laughs) I actually don't know that question so See, it's funny because I asked that question at some point. I was like, how do planes work? And I asked that question while a group of us was traveling to Hawaii. But I was asking it like as we hit turbulence. So everybody kind of just turned to look at me. They're like, don't ask that right now. And I was like, I'm genuinely curious. How are we up here? Read the room. I love that. I also think it's amazing now with like the kids and social media and the platform that is given to like, ocean sciences if you're looking for it yeah and it just kind of it's really nice to if I was a kid kind of going into this like I think back to when I was like 12 or 13 and my first introduction to it was like the summer camp that my parents were like well if you're thinking about if you're thinking about marine biology we're going to send you to this summer camp rather than pay tuition for you to find out you don't like it yeah (laughs) and like 
I had never like even known about half that stuff. And now like there's all these kids and they have access to like Instagram and YouTube and Twitter and they can see, they can find a scientist that's them in the future. Like a little girl can find a scientist to look up to that reminds her of herself, which I think is amazing to see. Yeah. I mean, I love it. You know, they're sort of, like we said, you know, I feel like that disconnect is sort of slowly like fading away to the point where scientists are no longer like these weird enigmas that are running around with lab coats and, you know, just have a beaker in their <laughs> hand trying to, you know, blow up something. Like we're sort of, it's humanizing them a little bit more, which I think was really important for a lot of, especially kids to be able to see and, you know, see like, okay, well, this is a normal person just like me. If they can do it, I can do it. Absolutely. Although I will have to say I was a little disappointed when I found out I wasn't going to be wearing a white lab coat every day. But you know, you can always put it on. <laughs> there is nothing stopping me. You're right. <laughs> you can always put on the lab coat. <laughs> <laughs> just sitting at a desk with a lab coat on just because I need to feel like a scientist. <laughs> like I am a scientist. Thank you very much. Here's my lab coat to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit more about what you do right now, what your work is right now. So do you want to give us kind of an overview of that again? So right now I focus on metal contaminants in fish behavior. And the metal that I specifically work with is copper because it's really relevant to South Florida since I live here. Um, And it's sort of really relevant to South Florida because of the fact that it's used a lot in fertilizers, pesticides, fungicides, algicides, every sort of side you can think of. (laughs) it is probably in there and the problem with copper is it doesn't biodegrade over time so it sort of just continues accumulating in the water and Mm. we have a prevalent agricultural industry here in central florida and people think well it's in central florida why do you care the problem is we also have the everglades and the everglades basically is just a giant body of water that's moving water from up north down south so we've got this prevalent agricultural industry and all of that copper and you know all of those fest- like pesticides and fertilizers are being brought down and sort of going through like a protected area and it's causing a lot of harm and the funny thing is i don't even look at lethal effects i look at sublethal effects so i look at the dosage that the environmental protection agency says is okay to be in our water because my question was like okay they're saying this is what's safe is it really safe though and Okay. Realistically, it's not. (laughs) I mean, I've done a whole project on it. I've been working on it for three years. And, you know, even fish that were dosed for only four days at a super low concentration were still being affected to the point that they couldn't detect predators. They couldn't detect other species, like other fish species of their own in the water. They were having issues seeing things and recognizing a threat. So it is still it's sort of there's so many moving puzzles into it but I just don't think enough is being done to actually control how much of these chemicals are being put into the water yeah so what in your opinion what could be done or what should be done in order to control that and how is there a way we can like reverse the effects that have already happened or is it kind of like a this is our new normal get used to it it's sort of that question is really hard to answer. I mean, part of my project was looking at if we take these animals out of the contaminated water, can they recover? And at low dosages, at low exposure times, they were able to recover. So we exposed some for four days, some for seven days, some for 10 days, and they were able to recover. But that's sort of really hard to actually mimic in the wild because obviously we're not just going to get all of these contaminants out of the water. 
like overnight yeah. it's it's sort of tough and i've even seen you know fish that were born in lakes that were treated with copper sulfate which is used to kill algae and it makes the water really nice and blue so if you guys ever see any sort of bodies of water that look like abnormally blue it's typically because they've been treated with copper sulfate and we sort of found fish in here that were completely stunted and you know we tried taking them out and keeping them in the lab for six months in completely clean water and they weren't able to recover so it's sort of sad so it is kind of like a either we stop now or it's just going to keep getting worse it's going to keep getting worse to the point of absolutely no return even if if we're not already at the point of no return for certain exactly for example in australia there was a study done which i thought was really cool that showed that super low like pollution levels of copper in coastal systems were detrimental to like coral reef spawning grounds so the coral reefs were getting completely decimated in super low concentrations of copper, which I thought was really interesting because it's not, you know, when we think of contaminants or, you know, pollution, we sort of think of the big guys like plastics or, you know, marine yeah. debris. We don't necessarily think of contaminants that you can't see. We don't think of chemicals, sort of, you know, it, it's not the first thing we think of. And there really are like silent killers because they're there, mm. you know they're getting more prevalent every day. Like now pharmaceutical runoff is a big issue and they're having negative effects, but because we don't necessarily see it floating around in the water, it's not the first thing we think of. Absolutely. And like, obviously plastic's important to address too, yeah. but it's also something that's being addressed by millions of people around the earth. Whereas like this chemical stuff, I'm like, I, this is the first I'm really learning about it. So it's interesting to see like something that's having just as big of an effect not getting the coverage that it the other is yeah i mean somebody here at fiu one of our colleagues actually they were doing a study and they found pharmaceutical runoffs and they were looking at bonefish and they found that bonefish that had high concentrations of i believe it was heart medication and antidepressants were more aggressive than those that did not have any traces of that. So even things like pharmaceuticals are now sort of making their way into our waterways. And it's, you know, it's really detrimental in the sense of if, you know, they're altering fish behavior. Everything we know about yeah. animals, you know, up until this point is now being altered. So now we don't have a base of what to compare it to anymore or what we can consider like normal behavior. Yeah. Which is crazy when you think yeah, about that's- it. <laughs> And the problem is, you know, to bring it back to people, because that's sort of what most people want to hear. All of this eventually works its way up the food web. You know, that one fish that gets contaminated in, you know, smaller bodies of water moves its way into salmon and herring and, you know, ultimately like big predators like sharks and marlins and, you know, and all of that eventually ends up on your plate and you're eating it. So that's also not great. (laughs) Yeah, it really and it's. Like if it's, um, if that dosage is affecting a fish this much, like we don't know what it's going to be for us. Oh no. Like even copper has been linked in humans. I mean, at low con- or at the optimal concentrations, it's, a t- it's essential for all life, right? It's a heavy yeah. metal that's yeah, essential yeah, yeah. for all life. But even in humans, it's been linked to glaucoma in high doses and it's been linked to neurodegenerative disorders in high doses. So it definitely is a threat to people, you know, and it's something to sort of yeah. be mindful of. It's really interesting because uh, this is a newer phenomenon. So you can guess it's what's going to happen. Yeah. 
but nobody knows for sure how this is going to actually play out if it keeps going this way yeah that's the scary thing i think that's what's scary to me it's like oh man (laughs) you know like pharmaceuticals they're a relatively new thing i mean they've always been around but it's only been you know in the last 20 years or so that we've actually been seeing pharmaceutical runoff making its way into the ocean and now we're kind of like oh crap well you know and even if you study like the short-term effects of it you know we don't know what's going to happen 10 years down the line yeah yeah and it's like this industry is it is really it's kind of a a lot of dread right here but (laughs) this is still a fairly new industry and you're not sure about the like the catch-up kind of yeah what you're seeing now is from is the result of 20 years from 20 years ago so you know 20 or so yeah yeah 20 years from now it could be just even worse and you're not going to like this very, very scary situation. I'm getting nervous. <laughs> it is. I mean, last summer I was part of um, something called the Northwest Passage Project, and we were up in the Canadian Arctic doing research for 21 days. And mm-hmm. when we were taking samples there, you know, we took ice core samples from New Year ice, you know, from old ice, and we found microplastics in all of them. So when we were looking at, you know, this old ice that's been there for years and years, we were seeing microplastics in it. And it's sort of like, this isn't from now. You know, this is from five, 10 years ago, and we're just seeing it now. So what are we going to see five, 10 years from now? (laughs) That's sort of the scary thing you sort of have to ask yourself. And if you think about the the past five to 10 years, it's not like we've been actively declining oh no <laughs> 10 years if anything, if anything it's gotten worse worse and now it's starting to go down hopefully hopefully so, interesting to see oh, i mean the sad it, it's it's kind of it's a double-edged sword because on one hand you have more people mm-hmm. being aware of plastics and you know, in general and trying to reduce their plastics. But then you have these giant companies like Amazon still, you know, mass producing plastic and shipping out plastic. I mean, just the other day I had a mini meltdown when my boyfriend sent me a picture of one of his boxes on Amazon and it was this giant box filled with just a whole bunch of plastic, like those bubble wrap pouches. And there was one tiny brush in the box. And I was like, why? What is the point of this? I forgot that was your Instagram story, and I literally was about to bring that up. I was like, "Why Amazon?" And there's some things like you wanna you wanna shop local and yeah. support local and reduce your plastic as much. But there's some things that is just like, I there was a I got a cold brew coffee jug, and I looked locally. There was nothing locally, and eventually I was like, "You know what? I'm just gonna order it on Amazon." And then I just was filled with like guilt because I was like man that's just so much unnecessary plastic just for me to have some coffee like (laughs) is it worth it like yeah so that's the thing right it's like you try to sort of tackle it on an individual level and you know you have beach cleanups and you have debris cleanups and those are great don't get me wrong I love them I participate in them all the time and I always advocate for them but there really needs to be a change like from the top down like it definitely needs to something that needs to be addressed like on a federal level on a governmental level it's you know industry level it's we can sort of we're putting band-aids on broken arms right now basically (laughs) yeah and it's it's not good enough but all we have are band-aids and someone else has all the actual medical supplies so we're doing what we can doing what we can but i definitely think we sort of need to corral together and sort of just demand something better 
from all yeah. of these giant industries. Let's um, let's finally talk about something a little uh, happier. <laughs> what is so? You said you work in the lab right now. You're the lab manager. Yes. What is a typical day in your lab like for you? What is your kind of what are you doing every day to learn more about this or research? There this? is no typical day. I know it's the answer everybody hates, but there is no typical day. Like yesterday was completely different from what I was doing today. And it's probably going to be completely different from what I'm doing tomorrow. Obviously I have live animals. I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of fish. So my first number one priority when I'm not doing science is making sure they're happy and healthy. Uh, yes. You know, I'm, I'm responsible for them. So I want to make sure that they're, they're taken care of, but a lot of it is just you're a fish mom. I'm a fish mom. I'm a fish mom. I'm a fish sister. I just... <laughs> Those are my kids, basically. Girl. <laughs> They're basically my kids. But, um, you know, you sort of start the day off just making sure everybody's okay and nobody looks awful. You know, you have days where you're just running experiments back to back to back for like six hours at a time. And then you have days where you're just reading literature. Because finding out what everybody else is finding is just as relevant to my research as what I'm doing myself. Mm. So it's sort of, yeah. there's never a typical day. And it's something I learned very early on in this field. There's like, there's no set description of what it is that you do. I figured out very early on when you're a marine biologist, you know, you're a boat safety person, you're a plumber, you're an electrician, you know, you're an educator, you're a scientist, you're sort of everything bundled into one person. You really, you really are a jack of all trades kind of thing when you oh, yeah. go into something like this because you have to be able to handle everything. Oh yeah, I mean, you have to be extremely creative. I think in this field because you need weird solutions to weird problems. Yeah, yeah. when you're in a boat in the middle of nowhere and you're trying to do research, there is no well. Let's just stop at the nearest hardware store and pick up a piece. There's no, nope. yep. you figure this out because you're not about to waste, <laughs> you know, a whole expedition because you can't figure out this one problem. <laughs> Once killed 500 fish overnight. How? <laughs> this is where I tell you, don't be afraid of failure because we all fail. <laughs> um, this was, <laughs> this was when I was first starting out. I think it was like one of my, like my first two, three weeks, maybe. And yeah. of doing an independent project. And I had gotten a substantial amount of largemouth bass from someone who donated them to our lab. And I did not quarantine them properly and put them into an existing, mm -hmm. an existing system with other fish. And the thing was, the bass were fine. But because it was all in like the same system, the other fish, like clearly that bass must have had a parasite or something that the other fish did not like or a bacteria. And they all started dying. So I came in the next day and, you know, at some point you move fish around, you move them from one tank to another tank. And I moved some of them from inside, outside. And then the next day, basically everybody outside was dying and it was absolutely awful. And I cried in the lab and I cried at home. And I was like, mom, I killed 500 fish. And it's really bad when it happens, but it's sort of a learning experience. And now like one of the things I stress whenever someone comes in is like, take quarantining things seriously and do not make species in yeah. the same system you learn from my mistakes i did not have anyone to learn from <laughs> and you'll never make that mistake never ever again. again so never again now i'm like super picky about it when people come in they're like well it's been 25 days it's like, no 30 days nothing more 
13. <laughs> Nothing less. A lot more. And it's funny because one of the things I do is like now I can sort of spot when my animals aren't acting normal. I know what normal is now for them. So if one of them's like swimming yeah. a little funny, I was like, all right, there's something wrong with this guy. And then I start looking at everybody and they're like, well, how do you know some, like that this one in particular is acting up? I was like, I just know. I've been staring at them for three years. I know. Trust me. <laughs> I know these guys. I know them. I know them better than I know me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you mentioned that you do experiments someday. So can you tell us kind of, what one of those experiments would look like or like how you are running those? So I've sort of switched from, I used to do some physiological stuff and I looked at how their swimming behavior changed when introduced with copper or even saltwater intrusion. Oh, so we have this really cool contraption called a swim tunnel and it's basically like a tiny tunnel and water comes in through one end, like a current comes in through one end and the fish has to swim against the current. And you do this to sort of calculate something called the eucrit, which is the maximum velocity a fish can maintain in a water column. So Mm -hmm. my boss sort of makes fun of me because he says it's basically a treadmill for fish. (laughs) So we were seeing that at low concentrations, they weren't able to maintain the same velocity that they normally would. Of like at low concentrations okay. of copper, they weren't able to maintain the same velocity as non-contaminated fish were. So I sort of took that and I was like, okay, well, what does that mean for the behavior? So one of my experiments, you know, would I have this giant chamber and I have a predator zone in the middle where I can put my predator in and I have this specific zone because I don't want the predator to eat my prey. <laughs> so you know, like, and I use this really cool software that can sort of track movements, it can track velocity, it can track, you know, how much time a fish spent in a particular zone. So this experiment is really designed to see, you know, if a prey fish or a prey species, you know, how they react to the introduction of a predator, or, you know, if they'll reduce their movement, if they'll, you know, maximize the distance from the predator as much as they can. And that's sort of one of the things yeah. I really look at a lot. Which is really funny to me because I found that contaminated fish would actually go into this predator zone and they would sit like right next to the predator because they weren't sure what was in there because they couldn't sense the hormones in the water saying like danger, danger, this is a predator and they couldn't properly see it. So I just think they knew there was something in the water and they maybe thought it was one of their own species and would like swim up to it and kind of like stay there. And I'm just sitting there looking at all of this play out on the videos. And I'm like, Oh, you fish, he would eat you if I wasn't trying to. (laughs) You just want to yell and be like, no, don't be stupid. No, they're stupid. They're stupid. They go in there. They just go in there. And the sad thing is it's like, you see them because it's like a mesh. They're like, it's a mesh tank. So the, so the yeah. hormones can like leach into the entire arena and I would see them like <laughs> nipping at it. And I'm like, stop it. Leave the bass alone. He is your enemy. You are its snack. What are you doing? <laughs> and, and my poor bass, because they're lab raised, they like, they don't have, even though they're apex predators in the wild, <laughs> they do not have yeah. that high of a predatory instinct because they're used i hand feed them they're so picky i have to hand feed them (laughs) so i'm like i'm keeping you safe because they're idiots okay 
I've said it on many podcasts before. I'm not a fish girl. I have this joke that I hate fish, like in quotes. I don't. But I have this joke that I hate fish. And you know what? This may have just solidified it for me because they're stupid. <laughs> and it's funny because every, I, I made a post not too long about what sort of misconceptions in marine biology. And one of them was like, people automatically assume you either study dolphins, whales, or sharks. <laughs> and there's some people yep. like, I hate fish. And it's like, okay. There's also invertebrates. There's, you know, there's mammals. Like I said, we did this sort of project in the Arctic. And one of the things was, you know, looking at phytoplankton. Like one of our groups was looking primarily at phytoplankton. And I was like, no, I don't really care about phytoplankton. Sorry, Andrea. But um, (laughs) I don't care. But they are important, you know, because... Guess who eats phytoplankton? The whales, you know? My baby. The whales. So we sort of have this thing where it's like, you know, to get people to care about one thing, sort of tie it back to something they love. It's like, well, you know what? With no phytoplankton, the yep. whales starve. And they're like, oh, no, protect the phytoplankton. You know? Exactly. Exactly. There's a sort of joke. I did um a scientific communication workshop when I was starting out and – our, our instructor was amazing. She was hilarious. And she's like, tie it back to what people love. So, you know, you study how fish are contaminated. Bring it back to their sushi and then watch them start caring. Yep. I was like, that's brilliant. I love it. <laughs> it really is. And once you, like, I've talked about this on previous podcasts too, but like, how can you get people to care about the ocean? But it's like, like we said earlier, the ocean is connected to us no matter where you are. Or what happens, like, you're you're connected to the ocean, so find a way to connect it, and then people... Yeah, like, care. once you sort of make it personable to people, and, you know, show them why they should care and how it ties back to them, I find it a lot easier to convince people to care about what you're doing. Instead of attacking them and just telling them, you know, you're an idiot for not caring, it's like, well, you know... All of the clothes and all a lot of the things that, you know, you like are transported through the ocean. You know, you eat seafood, the seafood comes from the ocean. You know, what you don't know, a lot of medicines come from things that occur naturally. And a lot of it is in the ocean. You know, so it's like, just tie it back. My favorite one is, um, my favorite one is, do you like to breathe? Because seven out of every 10 breaths is thanks to the phytoplankton in the ocean. So if you really like to breathe, maybe you kind of should care about like, the boom, ocean. boom, there. Okay. Do you, <laughs> what do you, you like going on vacation to the white sandy beaches and sipping mimosas by the water? <laughs> Guess what? You wouldn't like it if the water was green and murky and dirty, would you? No. Care about the ocean. <laughs> and they're like, you're right. You care like going the to the Bahamas. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, Before we end off, I do want to bring it back to uh, you were talking about your fish treadmill and I had to (laughs) laugh because you have such a a good setup. Uh, We did in one of my physiology classes, we did an experiment. And instead of having like an actual like tunnel, swim tunnel, we chased them around with a stick in a barrel. I love it. That is great. Just like a plastic barrel. I love it. You got to get creative. (laughs) You do, you do. You really like find what you can use. And you got to get it. creative with things like that. I love it. That that's the one takeaway from you know from being a scientist for anybody who's like is trying to get into the field. It's like 
you got to be creative and you got to know how to think outside of the box. That's the one sort of takeaway piece of advice exactly. I can give everybody. Like everybody thinks science is super cut and dry, but it's, it's really not. It's just a giant mess and it's great. <laughs> it, it really is. And that's, I think I struggled a lot when I first started school being like, oh my gosh, I'm not smart. I'm not smart. And that's because I was comparing myself to other people who were thinking different than I did. And I considered that detrimental to me rather than the asset that it actually is is like well you think that's a good way to do it but I think this is a good way to do it and they're both yeah. good ways to do it they're just yeah. different. it's just different paths to the same place and it's it's great I love it and like I love just comparing it, it with is. fellow scientists like well how would I do this like how would you do this you know and then coming up with a solution that works for everybody before we head off, is there anywhere that people can follow along with you, like your Instagram or Twitter or anything like that? that yeah, you share? mostly just my Instagram, which is sci, S-C-I-E dot C-O, psycho. And that's usually where I post a lot of my nonsense <laughs> and day-to-day lab stuff. <laughs> awesome. We'll make sure to follow along with Rose there. And Rose, thank you so much for joining thank me Thank you today. so much for having me, Jill. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Water Women podcast. You can follow along with Water Women on all our social media platforms. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at the Water Women podcast and on Twitter at Water Women pod. You can also check out our website, waterwomenpodcast.ca for some interactive activities and for a behind the scenes look at each podcast and the woman behind it. And until next week, stay salty. Mm-hmm.